Um, but a lot of cool things happening here at Cornerstone. So the mine, we are back and rolling. Um, we're going to continue to move down this timeline. If you're new to the mine, we do have some of these timelines right up here on the front of the stage. Uh, but we're going to just keep rolling down. We're about halfway through. We're about halfway through. We're in Revelation chapter 10. We're going to be doing chapter 10 and 11 tonight. 10 and 11. So I'm excited about that. But before we get there, we've got some questions. Um, we've had two questions from the version. Um, version is our version app. It's a, if you take out your smartphones um, and you um, go to version, which is a very popular Bible app that most of you probably have and don't even realize it. If you go there and hit live event, and then once you get to the live event, all you have to do is type in Cornerstone Chandler. Cornerstone Chandler. When that pops up, you'll see the mine right there. And then what will happen is you'll have all the notes for the uh, for tonight. We have some poll questions, just some fun things on there. So that's the version app. Um, we got a couple questions um, from the version app. And this was based off of three weeks ago when we last met. So let me go through these real quick. Um, number one, on the topic of the rapture. Are those who died already in heaven right now? Or will the dead in Christ and those that will be raptured end up in heaven at the same time? This is a very good question. Um, it's based off of 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, which most theologians believe is a, a reference to the rapture. And it says the dead in Christ will rise first. And so the question and the conflict in our minds comes, well, if the dead in Christ rise first... At the rapture, what happens to the thought that I thought once we died, we are in the presence of Christ immediately? What this is referring to is it's referring to the bodily resurrection. Okay, As a believer, those who die in Christ, the minute you um, close your eyes, you take your last breath, the very next breath, the minute you open your eyes, you'll be in the presence of Jesus in spirit. At the rapture... Your body will join. And we will get our new bodies, um, which I need one really bad. We will get our new bodies, the glorified bodies, um, at that moment. So what it's talking about, the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the full bodily resurrection. We know those that are still alive, they will full bodily be raptured. Their clothes are left and everything else. Those who are dead in Christ, their bodies will also um, rise there. That leads us to the next question, also about the rapture. Does it matter if a person was cremated? Yep. No, I'm just kidding. Um, does it <laughs> when the bodies in the grave are caught up, what happens to those that were cremated? They are bodily resurrected. Even if they're all over the football field at Ohio Stadium, doesn't matter. God has the power um, to resurrect. Because if we logically think about it, Almost everybody who's died, probably 99.999% of all the humans that ever lived the earth, their body's dust now anyway, okay? So God has the power to breathe life, to reassemble the body. And so whether you've been cremated, whether you've lost limbs or, or whatever, um, that will not affect um, anything. Because that would be real weird in heaven, all these things floating around. So, and then uh, we've got an email question says, at the, mine, at the last mine, the leader um, said that there was no sin in heaven. If this is true, where did Satan sin, and why is there a need to create a new heaven? Could you have him explain this tonight? I will have him do that. All right, so, so here, here's the thing. Is there heaven in, or is there heaven in sin? Is there sin in heaven? No, there will not be as far as we believe, Okay. 
how did Satan then sin if he was in heaven? Okay, two different things. Okay, so when Satan sinned, everybody, whether they're angels or humans, at some point had the option, it's called free will, had the option to choose either to go for God or turn their back against God. The angels, according to the Bible, did that at one point in time. Okay, and a, a bunch of them followed Satan as he chose pride, chose to exalt himself over God. And from that point on, those Satan and those angels were eternally lost. Angels became basically fallen angels, which we also know as demons. Apparently, it seems that at that point, the angels that did not choose to go with Satan were at that point sealed, or the elect angels, and they do not have the opportunity anymore to sin. So it looks like that at some point, everybody has to have an option to choose. Once they choose, then they were sealed. As far as human beings go, we talked about in the Genesis study in the summer that the tree was placed in the garden for a reason. That was to give us the choice to either um, follow God or act independently, which is sin, of God's plan for our lives. We know what Adam and Eve did. They acted independently of God's will. Sin entered the world at that time. We have been dealing from that point on with sin all the way up till now and all the way as we're going through Revelation. Once Jesus died for our sins, our sins were covered, our debt was covered as far as east is from west. And as long, and once we choose, as the Bible says in Romans um, 10, um, verse 9, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Once we make that confession, we are saved. Ephesians talks about we have, we have been sealed. We have a, the deposit of the Holy Spirit in us that we cannot lose. Okay? So once we have made that decision to call on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, ask for forgiveness of our sins, our penalty has been paid once and for all. That's justification. Okay? We cannot lose that. Now, obviously, there is some debate out there whether you can lose your salvation. As far as what I believe and what the church believes is you cannot lose your salvation. So once you are justified, you are free once and for all from the penalty of your sin. Okay? So when we get into heaven, there will no longer need to be that choice, can I sin or can't I? Once we get into heaven and once we are glorified, we are forever removed from the power of sin over our lives and from the presence of sin over our lives. And so it seems to indicate in the Bible that heaven and eternity will be without sin. Okay, sort of make sense? Okay. All right, so let's go on into Revelation um, chapter 10, but before we get there, let's just do a brief overview. It's been almost a month. Um, Revelation is a book. It was written by um, John. It was the last book written in the Bible. It's the last book of the New Testament, the 27th book. It was written somewhere around 80, 90 to 95, about 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was written by John, the Apostle John. Um, he was the only um, apostle alive still. Um, John wrote the last five books in the Bible chronologically, John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, and Revelation. So Revelation was written on the Isle of Patmos. John was sent there because of, what he, because of his proclamation of the gospel. Um, the first chapter in Revelation is pretty powerful. It talks about, it shows Jesus coming down in his full glory. And John, who was his best friend on earth, is basically flat to the ground in awe of who Jesus is. 
Chapter 1 deals with the past. Chapter 2 and 3 deals with the seven churches that are located in Turkey, Asia Minor. Um, And so it walks through each church, what they did right, what they did wrong, if they did either or, um, what they need to do to fix it, and any commendation that Jesus would have given them. After chapter 3, between chapter 3 and chapter 4 is where we believe the rapture takes place. Starts in chapter 4 with after this. So after this, we believe that from chapter 4 all the way up deep into Revelation, we get into what's called the tribulation, the great tribulation. Chapters 4 and 5 deal with what's happening in heaven. Then once we get to chapter 6, we come down into the, the seven judgments, the seven seal judgments. Now there, on the flip side, if you have your chart, you see 21 separate or 21 judgments here. The first seven are what's called the seal judgments. And that's what's referred to in chapter 6 and also in chapter 8. The seventh seal is actually the seven trumpets. And those are talked about in Revelation chapter 8. And then there's a brief pause, which we'll talk about tonight, and ending in chapter 11. Then the seventh trumpet is actually the seven bowls, which is we're going to cover in, in a couple weeks, which is in Revelation chapter 16. So we are in the middle of the tribulation. We've, we've gone through the judgments. And as we took a break in chapter 7 um, to sort of talk about who are these 144,000, who was the great um, throng of white, uh, people in white robes, we are now taking a break between the 6th and the 7th trumpet to talk about, in chapter 10, this, the angel and the little scroll, and then it's also going to talk about the two witnesses. So we're going to drop into uh, chapters 10 and 11 tonight. Let's open a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for the life-saving message of the gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those who went down in Jamaica. We thank you for those who are already preparing to go to India and Kenya and those who are just actively telling people about Jesus throughout their community. Heavenly Father, I just pray that um, you give us wisdom to see things the way you see them. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we read your word that um, we see you. Keep us focused on your message. Keep us focused on what revelation really is about, and that's the revealing of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, take away all distractions. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's look at chapter 10. And we just finished with the, um, the sixth trumpet, and now we are heading into a brief break. So, so John is taking a break here. And in verse 1, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. Legs can also be translated feet. He was holding a little scroll, which lay upon his hand. He planted his foot on the sea, or his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. He gave a loud shout like a roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. All right, so we've got John here. 
He is seeing things that humans have never seen before. We talked about that in week one, how unbelievably difficult it had to have been for a person living in antiquity, let alone someone living now, but someone living back then to describe what he is seeing in what is our future. And just to assume that John is seeing what we might know, maybe it, it's happening in a, in a couple months, a year, whatever. How could John accurately describe all these things? And so John has just got to be going nuts right now. Just, oh my goodness. I cannot believe what I'm seeing. And then we, we see this little break here. And it says, then I saw an, a, another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Now, whether this is actually another angel, a mightier angel than what we've seen, or as some believe this is another reference to Jesus Christ, we don't know. We can't be dogmatic about it. It seems as he's describing the mighty angel, it matches very similar to the descriptions we see of Jesus in chapter 1. And some of the descriptions of what we've seen throughout Revelation so far as Jesus speaks as a, a, a roaring lion and such, but we can't be dogmatic about that. So what we do know is a mighty angel's coming down from heaven. He's clothed in a cloud, um, rainbow. Remember the description of the rainbow going around the throne that we talked about? And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. The voices of the seven thunders. This could be a, a description that we see in Psalm 29. When God speaks and it talks about the seven um, thunders. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. So here's John. Here comes the angel. He, he shouts and all of a sudden these seven thunders start to speak. And John just starts to write. And then what happens? He stopped. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now, John, had saw, he saw a little scroll. Again, we don't know if this is the same scroll that we saw Jesus holding in previous chapters or if this is a totally new scroll. We don't know. But he sees this. He is asked to seal it up. And then we move on. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raises his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea that is, and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh, when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished. Just as he announced to his servants and to the prophets. So here's this angel standing left foot and right foot. You got the sea and the land. Um, what this is symbolically representing is his dominion over the entire earth. Very similar to one of those um, um, ancient Greek um, colossuses. Those big um, um, statues that used to stand on a port as you enter a city. So here's this angel and he thrusts his right hand up. Uh, anytime you do that or you see that in the Old Testament, that is someone making an oath. And who is he swearing by? Let's look at that. 
And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea that, and all that is in it. Okay, that could be a reference. That is a reference to God. That could be a specific reference to God the Son, Jesus. So then that comes back, well, then how is Jesus swearing by himself? Maybe it's not Jesus, maybe it's an angel. Again, we don't know if that's Jesus or an angel, but this wouldn't be the first time that God swore by himself because who else is God going to swear by? Okay, There's no one above God to make that oath. So we see in Hebrews, we've seen in several times in the Old Testament that God swore by himself. So again, this, this could still um, be Jesus. There will be no more delay. Now, when has this taken place? This has taken place between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. What's the seventh trumpet unleash? Yeah, the seven bowls or the seven vials. Basically, the end of the tribulation. This angel is saying, it's about to be done. It's about to be done. And if you look on your timeline, it's right towards the end when this is happening. No more delay. How amazing will that be for those who have waited for justice? Those who have been waiting for their blood to be avenged. To hear the words, there will be no more delay. What's heaven going to be like when those words are spoken? Verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from the heaven... Or from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. Okay. It will turn your stomach sour. But in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand. Basically, any scroll in that particular angel's hand, I would assume, would be small. But, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about the many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So here, here's John. The voice that he had heard said, hey, go take that scroll. So he takes the scroll, and what's he commanded to do? Eat it. Awesome. Eat it. And this isn't the first time we've seen something like this. We've seen it in Ezekiel, and we've seen it in a couple other places in the Old Testament, where the prophet has been asked to take the words of of the scroll and eat it. And what it is symbolizing is the fact that you need, as a prophet now, to own this. You need to become part of this prophecy. We've all heard the uh, old, old tale that you are what you eat. Okay, This is last summer's pig out. Okay, And I've become that. Okay, Hostess is now back in a full swing. So I'm about to become hostess. But you are what you eat. And so it's looking at this prophet, at John, and saying, you need to become this. This word needs to become you. Okay? You need to take this in. It'll be sweet as honey to your mouth and sour to your stomach. Also symbolic. The words of God are always described as being sweet. 
But the prophecy and the judgment that comes from the words are very bitter indeed. John is going from being a viewer of everything to be at, to becoming an active participant in it. Because the words of this prophecy affect him too. Because he's not going to stay at this spot. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 119. If you open your Bible right to the middle, there's a good chance you'll hit it. Psalm 119. For those trivia buffs out there, this is the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119, all but four verses talk about God's word. Psalm 119 is split into the Hebrew alphabet with eight verses going with each letter. Psalm 19 was meant for children to memorize. And so just as our children would memorize A, B, C, D, E, F, G to twinkle, twinkle, little star tune, the Hebrew children would memorize their alphabet with eight verses of God's word tagged with each letter. And we look at verse 103. And actually, let me just start in verse 97, just so you get a gist of of what Psalm 119 is all about. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path, so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. And then verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. And it goes on and on. And each chapter, each letter in this alphabet describes how powerful God's word is. And children of those days would study God's word. And here's what the rabbis and the teachers would do. Before a student would open God's word, they would all stick out their tongue and they would dab some honey on their tongue, which was the candy of the day. That was the sweetest thing of the day. And so what would happen, every time a child opened God's word, they would equate it with something sweet and something beautiful and something yummy. And they longed to open God's word. And so throughout the Bible, you'll see several times where it, it talks about, oh God, your word is like honey to my mouth. And that's what it's referring to. And so here John is, is, is tasting God's word, which is pure and beautiful and sweet, just like honey. But it will eventually turn his stomach because of the judgment and because of what it is about to talk about. And where were we? All right, let's look at chapter 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar 
with its worshipers. Now, before we get going into 11, 11 is one of those parenthetical, one of those parenthesis moments where, where John has been taken out of the chronological timeline here. And he's talking about what he has to do. Part of this prophecy. This is part of what he needs to talk about. And so this is basically going to take us and talk, talk about the two witnesses, which actually are not at the end of the tribulation. They begin at the very beginning. So he's going back and setting the table here. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. How many years is 42 months? Almost four. Three and a half. Three and a half. So it's talking about the three and a half years that we see in the tribulation, the first three and a half. And so he is given a measuring rod to measure out God's temple. Why is he given that? Where is God's temple today? Yeah, the church. It's within our hearts. Where is it um, physically on earth? Is it still there? No. As of AD 70, the temple is no longer here. The temple in Jerusalem was gone. Um, the general... Um, the general Titus, basically, he's the son of, of Vespian. The general Titus went in and they sacked Jerusalem in AD 70. And from that point on, the temple has not been there. And the, Jew, the Jews have been wanting to build this temple ever since. In fact, there are plans to build it. Furniture's bought, all that kind of stuff. Why can't they build it today? <laughs> What's on the Temple Mount? The Dome of the Rock, which is the, one of the high worship places for who? Islam. So if you go over and you see one of those um, aerial shots of Jerusalem, you see that big golden dome. Okay, that's not a big football team. That's not Notre Dame. That, that's actually the Dome of the Rock. Okay, and it's on the Temple Mount where God's temple is suppo- supposed to be. And so he is telling John, I was given a reed, or John was saying, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. What do we assume when someone starts measuring out spaces? What's that person planning on doing? Move in. I remember the first time I was at Cornerstone, and, and we decided to go plan a church um, out in Santan Valley, who needs helpers for Harvest Festival. Uh, when we, we started planning a church, a, another youth pastor, I won't name his name, he knows how evil he is, all of a sudden started coming to my office periodically with a measuring tape. And I'd be looking, and for the first couple of weeks, I was like, what's he doing? And I was like, oh. Oh. He's moving into my office. That's awesome. How rude. And so, <laughs> he's measuring desks. Pardon me, I know you're counseling, but and just doing all this kind of stuff. Well, here God's about to take over. Okay? And so John is measuring out the temple. What's he not measuring, though? What's the one part that he's not going to deal with? The outer courts, which is for who? The Gentiles. Now, this is a lot different than when we go back into um, AD 30-something and we see Jesus turning over, temp- or turning over tables. Where was he turning those tables over? In the outer courts. 
I used to love, or I used to, I still, still love reading the stories of Jesus coming into to the temple and seeing the money changers and seeing all the doves and all these things for sale and all this kind of stuff and, and busting it, just taking whips and, and turning it over. And we're like, and as we read that, we just will go, yeah. Jesus, that's awesome. And, and I remember when I was a, first became a Christian, and I first started, um, and I became a Christian before I knew anything about the Bible, which, which happens a lot. And, and so I, as I'm reading through it going, whoa, that's a different Jesus. That's not that nice Norwegian Jesus, you know. That, that's a Jesus that's a little mad. He's going crazy. And I used, to, I used to wonder, I'm like, man, we probably shouldn't have bookstores because he's going to just turn those things inside and out. He's going to turn over our cafes. He's going to turn over all this kind of stuff. And that's what I thought as a young Christian. And when I started studying, um, studying God's word more in depth, I realized, oh, he wasn't doing it because of what they were selling. He was doing it for where they were selling. You see, the money changers would sell in the outer courts because that belonged to the Gentiles. And so who cares if they could hear God's word? Who cares if they could hear the message over all the cows and the sheep and the birds and the changing of money? Because really God's word is just for us. And Jesus, when he saw that, went ballistic because God's word is for all people. And he says, you cannot keep these people from hearing and being part of this. And so now we fast forward to Revelation and God's now saying, yeah, let's not worry about the Gentile courts. Let's just look and let's measure off this piece. And here's what's happening. From the moment Jesus Christ died and rose again and the church was initiated until now and all the way up until the rapture, God's people, the Israelites, were sort of put on the bench, to use a baseball terminology. They were sort of put on the bench. They were not kicked out. They were no longer, they were not, no longer God's people. But all, the church became the focus. Once the rapture happens and the church is taken out, all focus comes right back into what? Israel. And now we have that final week of Israel coming into play. Another thing, and this, again, we for sure can't get dogmatic about this, but going back to the Dome of the Rock, that's actually not built exactly where the temple was. The original temple, if you took out the outer courts of the Gentiles, would fit on the Dome of the Rock right now, or would fit next to the, the dome right now. You wouldn't have to tear it down. The only part that the dome would be on would be the outer court area. And so that could play into this whole idea of the Gentiles trampling on the outer courts. But again, that's extra biblical. Um, but it's pretty interesting. Verse 3. And I will appoint two, my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. How long is that, mathematicians? Three and a half years. Good. All right. Clothed in sackcloth. Okay, if that was embarrassing back then, it's for sure going to be embarrassing um, whenever this happens in our future. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. And they stand before the Lord of the earth. 
If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths, awesome, and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during um, the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Wow. Two witnesses believe most likely happens during the first three and a half years of the tribulation where we've already talked about some of the plagues and all the things that are happening. We've talked about droughts. We've talked about no rain. We've talked about the waters turning to blood. They're probably the reason. So we've got these two witnesses cruising around in sackcloth or burlap, basically. Which basically, anytime you see that in the Old Testament, they're coming in judgment. Who are these two witnesses? Or two witnesses? No one knows. No one knows. We have some possible hints. Sure sounds like Elijah. Sure sounds like Moses. Is it possible that God will send Elijah and Moses back as the two witnesses? Yeah, it's possible. A great majority of theologians believe those are the two. Some believe it would be Elijah and Enoch because those two didn't die physically. But who the two witnesses doesn't matter. Some believe also that it's um, Elijah and Moses because these are who Jesus saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. But whoever these two witnesses are, and personally I do believe it would be Elijah and Moses, but whoever they are, look at what they do. Look at what they do. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Whether this is real dragon fire or if it's reflective of the words they're speaking, um, seems to indicate this could be the real deal. Um, this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during uh, the time they are prophesying. Okay, so huge drought. And I think we see that indicated in the first three and a half years on the timeline. And they have the power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. So two powerful men who are proclaiming the word of Christ. So here we have in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, we've already talked about several different witnesses for God. We've talked about how the angels are going to be witnesses for God and they're going to proclaim the name of Jesus. We talked about the 144,000 sealed who are going to become the evangelists and they're going to be proclaiming the word of God. And now we have the two witnesses who have incredible power, not only to proclaim the word of God, but they can't die. For three and a half years, no one can touch them. Now, pause for a second. If two men were walking around in sackcloth, proclaiming stuff that no one really wants to hear, at that moment. And anybody who tries to stop him, probably an innocent police officer right off the bat, hey, you can't loiter here. <laughs> who knows? But eventually it's going to keep building. And every time someone tries to approach them or tries to stop them, they die. How does that escalate? I've tried to imagine. So does a, a tank 
eventually come up against them? Do planes eventually come up? What happened? These two men are just prophesying for three and a half years and proclaiming the word of God. Now, I'm going to guess quite a few people, instead of trying to kill them, are going to go, well, no one's killed them yet. I think they might have some power and we might want to look into this. I'm assuming their witness is going to bring a lot of people to Christ. But we have these two men prophesying. Oh, this will probably end up being a question, so let me answer it now. Okay, verse um, 4. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Turn to Zechariah 4, and we'll look at that. Zechariah is in the Old Testament towards the end. It's about 60% of the way through your Bible. I love Zechariah. I love the prophecies in Zechariah. I love specifically looking in Zechariah because um, as a history major, um, it, he's writing this almost at the exact same time the Battle of Thermopylae is happening, you know, the big 300. So just down south in um, Palestine, these words are coming out of Zechariah's mouth. Look at um, chapter 4. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see two, I, I see a solid golden lamp gold lampstand with a bowl on top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. And he said to me, this is the word of the Lord of Zerubbabel. That's fun to say. By the way, Zerubbabel, never use that as your alarm code. One of our pastors thought that would be funny until the first time it went off. And we're trying to explain to him, it's Zerubbabel. It's the, <laughs> it was the worst thing in the world. But not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become level ground then you will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out the golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord all over the earth. So when we have this reference, and I know we just read the whole chapter there, but when John's referencing this, his listeners would have understood, okay, this is, this is um, what God was talking about, his two messengers. And anytime you see, we've already saw in chapters 1, and then we um, saw later with the church of Ephesus, um, this whole idea of the lampstands. And, and, and what that represents, well, we see this olive trees. And the two olive trees are basically God's spirit. The, the, the messengers pouring out God's spirit, God's word into these lampstands, which we know represent ministries. And so, again, it's a reference to these two men who are going out prophesying um, to the world. Now, when they have finished, verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out 
or comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. So at the end of the three and a half years, God allows the beast, which we'll talk about um, um, in future weeks, the beast to come out, which is the Antichrist, um, possessed by Satan, to destroy the two prophets. And they will lie dead in the square for how many days? Three and a half. And every person, nation, tongue will see them. Now, for years and centuries, skeptics looked at Christians and went, that's, that's foolish. There's no way every person on earth could see this over the course of three days. Well, now we, with all our smartphones, we know how very possible it is for every person on earth to see what's happening um, over in um, Jerusalem. So they're going to lay dead for three day, three and a half days. They are being refused burial, which in ancient times was sort of um, a way to mock these people. It was an insult to, to put dead bodies up for everyone to see. In fact, on the crucifixion, when people died on the cross, their bodies actually hung up there for a while. The only reason why Jesus's didn't was because ceremonially it had to be taken off before they could do the Passover. So here we have these dead bodies. And we still see this um, today in Middle East countries where they'll drag bodies throughout the street. They'll take their sandals and they'll slap the bodies. This is what's happening. And so these two prophets, who people apparently have grown to hate, <laughs> these two prophets that prophesied judgment. And imagine those who did not turn their lives over to Jesus, how much hate you would have for these two prophets. No rain for three and a half years, turning water to... All these disasters, people are going to place on them. They're going to be the scapegoats. And so there's going to be a huge party, a huge celebration worldwide when these two prophets are dead. But, verse 11, But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet. And terror struck those who saw them. No, duh. How terrified would you be? You're about to take off your sandal. You're like, yeah! And he stands up. Okay? And all of a sudden, Greta is coming in. News alert. And all these news organizations are coming in. They're standing. They're standing. Can you imagine what that spectacle is going to be like? God, the breath of God enters these two, and they're standing. And I didn't mean to say Greta Van Susteren is not going to be raptured. That's not what I was intending there. Um, <laughs> news organization. Um, even though I'm, I'm assuming most of the media will still be there. Um, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood to their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. How long, how, how many times as a Christian have you just wanted that loud voice to come down and say, It's true. He's not lying to you. I love him. Ohio State's going to win. Whatever. 
loud voice, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. If them standing from death didn't scare everybody, them floating up on a cloud, this isn't a rapture thing. This is like Jesus ascended. And if you haven't caught the two parallels here, Jesus' ministry, proclaiming the word of God, publicly executed, rose, ascended to heaven. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. So in verse 14, John picks up right back on the timeline as if we didn't even take a break. And he goes right into the, um, the last trumpet. So here we have the two prophets, three and a half years, prophesying judgment, prophesying the word of God. Killed. They were resurrected. Not only resurrected, but they ascended into heaven with a loud shout from heaven. And then this earthquake. And after the earthquake, people gave glory to God because there was no doubt now who's in charge. It's God. It's the Alpha and the Omega. It's the I Am. I can't imagine what a severe earthquake would be like to kill that many people and the destruction. Um, The great, um, what the biggest fault line in the world goes from Africa all the way up right next and through Jerusalem. In fact, in Kenya, as we, if any of you have been to Kenya and you've gone to the safari, we typically stop right on the great fault line, the great African or continental rift. And so imagine that thing erupting, great earthquake, and then it ushers us in to the end of the tribulation. Ultimately, what we need to understand, and we say this after every Revelation talk, is this is the revealing of Jesus Christ. This is God serving justice eventually. This is what all the prophets and all the servants, all the apostles have pointed to. The day of the Lord. Now, my prayer is that all of us in here are believers. And that when we die or if the rapture happens, we will be in the presence of God. But, oh, what about those who don't? Do we have the burden to reach the lost for Jesus Christ? Or are we going to continue to sit in our chairs and study and sing and fellowship? All good things. We were created to worship, but we were left here to tell people about Jesus. That's our call. That's our commission. That's our command. And we know what happens. We know the outcome. We know what it means when God says we'll be separated. I can't imagine what it would be like to be separated from God for eternity. It's not a fire and brimstone talk. It's just, I can't imagine what it would be like to be separated from God for eternity. All this junk we deal with in our world, all the pain, all the violence, all the lies, deceit, the evil, this hell we deal with, 
is the only hell we will ever know as Christians. How can we let this hell that we deal with the only heaven non-Christians will ever know? This is as good as it gets for those who die apart from Jesus Christ. Our hell can't be their heaven. So I'm hoping as we talk about revelations, we continue to pull through. We really focus in on what does God have me doing tomorrow? What is God having me do this week? Where can I serve? Where can I give? What can I do to make sure that everybody hears the word of God? We have time for a couple questions, if there are any. And then we will close in prayer. Anybody out there? I've got lights in my face. I can't really see. Anybody out there? Either I answered a lot of questions or I just made everybody sad. <laughs> All right. Well, here, here's the deal. Um, Uversion, go to Uversion. We have also um, the Mine um, online, which basically is our Facebook. So grab there. If you have any questions, I'll get them and I'll, I'll try to answer them. Again, thank you so much for those who prayed and actively uh, participated uh, in praying for Jamaica. Your prayers... Uh, Man, we felt it. It was powerful. Um, continue to pray for India. Continue to pray for all the missions going on here. Continue to pray for this church and the leadership of this church. A lot of great things happening. Um, pray for Lynn um, and his vision. Pray that his vision is God's vision. And um, we thank you so much for coming out. Bring a friend to the mine and make sure you head out to Harvest Festival. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. We thank you. For the truth that is in your word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, the study of Revelation is a blessing for those who hear it. Heavenly Father, give us the burden to um, reflect on your calling on our life. Give us the burden to reach out to those who need to hear the gospel. Heavenly Father, put those people on our hearts, on our minds. And whether it's a simple invite to dinner, an invite to a harvest festival or to a service or whatever it is, Heavenly Father, give us those divine moments to reach out and tell people about you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will encourage us to study your word each and every day. To study it, to learn it, to, to dig into it as searching for gold. Heavenly Father, we... We pray that um, your word becomes honey to our lips and that we long to read it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we, as human beings, have the opportunity, a second chance, at a relationship with the creator of the universe. We thank you for your love. We thank you that our sin is washed away. And we thank you that we have eternity with you. Be with us this week. Strengthen us. Give us wisdom to see things the way you do. Bless us. We love you. It's in your precious name. We pray. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for coming. It was fun. See you next week.